Thanks for tuning in to this Journey Bible Church sermon podcast. Join us every week for fresh sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you listen most. If you're looking for a church in the Kansas City metro, come check out one of our church campuses for worship on Sundays. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. everybody. Um, my name is Colton Tatham. I think most of you guys know that by now. So I'm going to keep saying it though, because one day we're going to be on the West Campus. We're going to have visitors and they might not know who we are. So <laughs> anyways, if, uh, if there is anybody who is new here today, I think we do have a few new faces. Uh, or if you're listening online, uh, again, we're uploading our messages on Tuesdays at noon. Um, thanks again for joining us. Uh, we're continuing our series on the attributes of God called No One Like Him. And in this message, we're going to unpack uh, two attributes that some think contradict each other. Uh, these attributes are God's justice and God's mercy. But as we're going to discover in the message, there are none like God. In Him alone do we find the full goodness of justice and mercy displayed. Now, it's hard to talk about justice without first talking about superheroes. You know, whether it's the Justice League, the Avengers, or even the Super Friends, there's one thing superhero teams all have in common. Superhero teams all fight for justice. They fight to protect the weak. They fight to stop lawbreakers. And they use their powers to defeat extraordinary evils that ordinary people have no chance of defeating. However, the moment that a superhero starts fighting against justice, the moment that a superhero decides to use their powers to harm rather than to help, that is the moment that they start to become a super villain. In comic books, TV shows, video games, movies, you name it, just about every major superhero has an evil, dark side version of themselves. In some stories, Superman is not the heroic Man of Steel. He becomes this sort of selfish, totalitarian ruler who controls a world where nobody can oppose him. In the Avengers movies, Iron Man's insecurities lead him to turn against Captain America and fight against his own team rather than uniting together to fight evil. In Spider-Man, Peter Parker gets seduced by the power of an alien symbiote named Venom and he becomes this self-centered, lawless, dark Spider-Man. Just like normal people, even the best superheroes can be tempted to turn against justice. But unlike superheroes, and unlike us, God is never tempted to turn against justice. Not only is God never tempted to turn against justice, God is the ultimate standard for justice. While we may all have a dark side 
that we may battle within. And our favorite superheroes all have dark sides that they battle too. There are none like God, and he does not have a dark side. You see, our best versions of justice in this world are a lot like never-ending sequels. Whenever a new superhero movie comes out, we should expect more spin-offs. Why is that? Well, one, they make money, but two, there's always a new criminal, a new disaster, and a new villain to stop. Even the best hero cannot stop evil once and for all. We live in a world where there's no rest for the wicked. The prevalence of evil is so ingrained into our reality that even it shapes our fantasies. I mean, ultimately, only God can deliver real justice and lasting peace that we yearn to see in our favorite make-believe superhero movies. But if this is true, then why do so many people in the world have a hard time accepting God as both just and merciful? Well, one problem is the way we view God. Many view God no differently than we view superheroes. Many have thought God's just, darker side version is locked away in the Old Testament. And God's merciful, loving, lighter side version is in the New Testament. But the Bible isn't about a two-faced God. God is one, and God is always good. And the Bible is God's own word showing us how he orchestrates justice and mercy together for the greatest possible good in an evil, rebellious, and broken world. Another problem that keeps us from seeing how God's justice and mercy perfectly flow together from his goodness is the way we view ourselves. Depending on our season of life, you know, most of us want to see ourselves as the heroes of our own stories. Sometimes when things are rough, we might view ourselves as the victims. And there's even some of us in this world that choose to give up and are content to view themselves as villains in this life. No matter how you see yourself, a hero, a victim, or a villain, James 2 makes it clear that we're all under judgment. We are heroes who've broken the law. We are victims who've victimized others. We are villains who've harmed without remorse. If God were only just, the Bible would be a very short book, probably be about three chapters long. But God is more than just. He's also merciful. James 2, 10 through 13 says this, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty." For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Again, mercy triumphs over judgment. The way we view God and the way that we view ourselves 
can sometimes prevent us from seeing God as he truly is. When we have a low view of God and a high view of ourselves, we often see judgment, God's judgment, on those that we deem as victims as something that's unfair. And when we see God's mercy on those that we deem are guilty, it can cause us to cry, God, that's not fair. James 2 reminds us, though, that God established the moral law, not us. And the way that God's moral law works is that if you fail at one point of it, you fail at all of it. This standard is applied fairly to every single person. God's moral law is a lot like a pass-fail examination of human holiness. But unlike a pass-fail test in America, where 51% is considered passing, only 100% gets you a passing grade with God. God's moral being is perfect, which means his standard for moral excellency from his creation is also perfect. Thus, God's moral law treats a 99% grade the same way that it treats a B, a C, a D, or an F. Unless you are perfect, you're subject to the consequences for failing to live up to God's moral law. Is this unfair? Absolutely not. When it comes to morality, you're either moral or immoral. There's no in-between with God. James's point is that being partially moral is still 100% immoral. And if you think God is unfair to set such a high standard, then that's just tough luck. You're living in a fantasy land if you think you get to tell a righteous God what's fair and unfair. The criminal doesn't get to tell the judge I think your law is just too hard to follow after he gets caught breaking the law and demands mercy. The servant doesn't get to tell the king, I think your judgments are too harsh after she gets caught stealing from the kingdom and then demands mercy. We don't get to tell God, I think you're unfair after we've sinned countless times against our creator and demand mercy. The late R.C. Sproul was an incredible American preacher, writer, theologian, professor. We even have some of his children's books for sale. Uh, God really opened the way for this man to do it all. Uh, With some of his students, he would use a brilliant illustration to demonstrate how we experience God's justice and mercy. And I'm going to try to do his illustration justice, but it goes something like this. On the first day of class, R.C. Sproul would tell his students they would have four term papers due that would make up the majority of their grade. Uh, They needed to turn these papers in on time, or they'd get a failing grade for that paper. R.C. asked the students on the first day of class if they had any problems. Students were like, no, that sounds fair. Everybody agreed, and the school semester went on. So September rolled around, and the first paper was due. And in a class of 250 students, R.C. received 225 papers. From the 25 students without their papers, 
R.C. instead received pleas of mercy as each student stood before him, shivering and shaking in fear. I'm so sorry, Dr. Sproul. I just had a crazy week. My car broke down. I just need a little bit more time. Wanting to be a kind and popular professor, R.C. decided to extend the deadline for those 25 students. But he warned them and said, next time I want those papers in on time. Don't let it happen again. So, the next deadline rolls around for the second term paper in October. This time, R.C. received 200 papers from his students. And 50 students timidly walked in without their term papers. The pleas for mercy began roaring in. I'm so sorry, professor. I, I heard what you did for so-and-so, and I was just so busy. Another crazy week. My car broke down again. It was homecoming. Please give us one more chance. Again, R.C. decided to extend the deadline for these 50 students. And he said, you know, this is the last time I do this. I want those term papers in on time next time. Don't let it happen again. The deadline then rolls around for the term paper in November. Only 150 students walked in with their term papers this time, while another 100 students just go in as casual as can be. They knew the routine. They thought they had figured Dr. Sproul out. So R.C. asked one of the students, hey, where is your term paper? And the student replied in the most casual manner, hey, don't worry about it, prof. I'll have it to you in a couple of days. So R.C. takes out his black grade book, looks at the student, and said, F. One by one, F, F. F for each student without a paper. During this process, somebody in the back of the room shouted out to R.C., that's not fair. And R.C. replied to the student, if I recall, you didn't turn your paper in last time either. He looked at the black book and looked back up at the student. If you want justice, you can have justice. Get an F for both papers. He proceeded to mark down two failing grades for that student. Then he asked the whole class, anyone else want justice, ladies and gentlemen? The classroom, dead silent. We need to understand the difference between justice and mercy. R.C. Sproul says, the minute you think God owes you mercy, a bell should go off in your brain that warns you and tells you that you are no longer thinking about mercy. For by definition, mercy is voluntary. God is never obligated to be merciful to a rebellious creature. God declares this, in fact, about himself in Romans 9, 15 through 16. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God's justice and mercy both flow from his goodness. 
God's justice is his goodness necessarily confronting our immorality. But God's mercy is his goodness voluntarily comforting us in our weakness. The overwhelming point from James, R.C. Sproul, and Romans is that if we are rebels in the kingdom of God, we can plead for mercy from God, but we cannot demand mercy from God. So when we demand mercy, it's tied to our failure to see God as he truly is and our failure to see ourselves as we truly are. God's justice is necessary. God's mercy is voluntary. And we should never think that God owes us mercy, and we should never take God's mercies for granted. God's justice and mercy are difficult subjects. Uh, When life doesn't go our way, we too might be tempted to cry, God, that's not fair. I wanted to take the first half of our message to just help us process what causes this fault in our hearts. And maybe for some of us this week, we need to expand our understanding of God's goodness. And maybe for others of us this week, we just need to expand our understanding of our own depravity and how, how, how far we fall short of God's law. Now, there's a lot more that could be said, but I want to shift to gears for the next half of our message. I want us to clearly define God's justice and mercy and then examine how those two attributes interact in our world. So first, let's start off with justice. How exactly do theologians define God's justice? Well, first off, justice is basically as synonymous with the word righteousness in the Bible. Uh, Whether you read justice in one English translation and righteousness in another English translation, most of the time you're basically reading the same Hebrew word group in the Old Testament and the same uh, Greek word group in the New Testament. The two words are interchangeable. So if we speak of God's justice, we're also speaking of God's righteousness. So feel free to use whichever word is your favorite because we're talking about the same attribute of God. Theologian Wayne Grudem prefers the term righteousness, and he defines God's righteousness or justice this way. He says, God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. Or if you prefer justice, God's justice means that God always acts in accordance with what is just and is himself the final standard of what is just. Two words, same meaning. Grudem's definition highlights two parts of God's justice. Uh, First, God's justice describes his activity. This means that no matter the circumstance, God's activity is always just, righteous, good, and fair. His law-giving is just. His warnings are just. His commands are just. His expectations just. His punishments, just. All of God's activity is always just. He never acts in a way towards anyone that is unjust. Second, God's justice means that he is the ultimate authority of right and wrong. There's no higher standard than God's law. This means that your own personal code of honor, our state laws, 
Our federal laws and international laws are not the highest standard on matters of good and evil. God himself is the standard who sets the standard for justice in the world. Thus, the best institutional laws in this world are ones that flow from God. And the worst laws flow from our wickedness. So from Grudem, we learn that God's justice is the culmination of authority and activity that flow from his goodness. God has the authority to be the highest standard of justice, and his activity always is mediating justice. Let's now take a look at God's mercy. Just like justice, there are several English words in your Bible that all basically mean the same thing as mercy. Um, Whether it's pity or compassion or mercy, they're all equivalent. These words all refer to the same attribute of God that we've been calling mercy in our sermon today. A.W. Tozer defines mercy this way. He says, as judgment is God's justice confronting moral iniquity, so mercy is the goodness of God confronting human suffering and guilt. Again, mercy is the goodness of God confronting human suffering and guilt. Uh, Like Grudem, Tozer highlights two aspects of this attribute, except during his definition, we get the added benefit of of how he defines judgment too, but let's look at mercy first. So what is mercy? Well, just like justice, mercy is an activity of God's goodness. It's an activity of God's goodness that confronts us in two distinct ways. First, God's mercy refers to his goodness confronting our suffering. Uh, For instance, when you're sick and you suddenly receive that boost of energy that you needed to make that big presentation at work, uh, that's you experiencing God's mercy. When you make an honest mistake that you're not even aware of and the consequences for that mistake are not as bad as they could have been, that's you experiencing God's mercy. Believers and unbelievers are recipients of God's mercy every single day. And that's because God's goodness leads him to voluntarily show compassion on us, even if we don't deserve it. God's mercy doesn't just confront our suffering, though. Secondly, God's mercy refers to his goodness confronting our guilt. When R.C. Sproul's students didn't turn their first papers in, they deserved to get a failing grade. But instead, they received an extension. That's mercy. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they ate the fruit in the garden, even after God told them it would lead to death, God delaying their deaths to many, many years later was mercy. Now, mercy and grace are two terms that are closely related but distinct, and it's important we recognize the distinction. Mercy is God voluntarily choosing to delay giving guilty people what they deserve. Grace, on the other hand, as we'll see in next week's sermon with Pastor Rex, is God voluntarily choosing to give guilty people more than they deserve. When God delays punishment, it's mercy. When God comforts us in suffering, it's mercy. But when God grants you something as amazing as salvation, that's grace. 
If R.C. Sproul's students had received automatic A's even after they failed to turn the papers in, that would have been grace. When God told Adam and Eve that one would be born of mankind to stop evil once and for all, that was God's grace. Grace is one of the most incredible attributes of God, so do not miss next week's message or watch it online. Whereas mercy triumphs over judgment, we'll see that God's grace triumphs even over mercy. Now, we can't have a sermon on justice and mercy without talking about judgment. So what is judgment? Well, A.W. Tozer puts it this way. Judgment is God's activity of justice confronting iniquity. That's evil, immorality, sin. In other words, judgment is God's way of setting things right. It's his way of taking rebellion against him and setting it right again. And the form that God's judgment often takes against evil is always some kind of retribution or punishment. That is, unless God voluntarily chooses to delay that punishment by showing mercy. Ultimately, all evil and every sin will face judgment. Evil may face God's judgment in the present, such as when God brings calamity upon a corrupt nation, but because of his mercy and directed by his wisdom, God may see it better to delay that punishment. Does this mean, though, that God is unjust when he chooses to do so? Does God ever just let evil get away? Absolutely not. We have to remember that God is a timeless being. So if an evil doesn't get punished in the present, it doesn't mean that it will never be punished. From the way that we experience time, everything evil is going to face a final judgment in the future. The world as we know it is literally in a form of a spiritual death row right now. All throughout the Bible, God tells us a day is coming when he will bring all of creation, every tongue, every tribe, and every nation together to examine every single deed. And at the final judgment, 99.9% is still a failing grade. Now, since God's justice and mercy flow from his goodness, there are three features I, they share that I do want us to remember. And these, some of these might be new for you. Uh, first, God's justice and mercy are distributive. In social and political justice, there are two major streams of philosophy. One stream is called egalitarian justice. According to John Feinberg, egalitarian justice distributes exactly the same thing to everyone. No one gets more or less than anyone else. Distributive justice, on the other hand, renders to each person exactly what is due, no more, no less. Now, history tells us the Roman Empire employed egalitarian justice in the military. When there was a deserter or a traitor, a mutiny, some form of insubordination, they would practice an egalitarian form of justice called decimation. Now, that's an intense word. If they're using decimation, you don't want to be on the receiving end of that. Uh, this is where every tenth man in a group would be executed by his fellow soldiers regardless of his position, merit, or, great, or, or uh, guilt. 
Let's just be glad that God's justice does not operate in the egalitarian sense. In other words, our individual deeds are what God will judge us by. This means that if you grew up in a really bad family, um, you just had awful parents, you aren't in the Roman legion. You aren't going to face judgment for their sins. We will each face judgment for our own sins. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. Even though the consequence is the same for all, the way in which that consequence is applied by God is distributive. He renders that punishment and more to each individual based on what the individual has actually done. In the same way, God's mercy is distributive. Even though God is a loving God, nothing obligates him to show mercy, grace, and love equally to all of creation. In fact, his wisdom obligates him to show it distributively to humanity for the greatest possible good of creation. If God's mercy were egalitarian in nature, it would be as if R.C. Sproul's casual students who turned three papers in late should receive the same mercy as the first-time students who had only turned one paper in late. If God's mercy were egalitarian in nature, if he were obligated to show mercy, then that student who cried, that's not fair, would be right. Considering that mercy is voluntary in nature, God's mercy must be distributive. Again, as Romans says, God will have mercy on whom he has mercy, and God will have compassion on whom he has compassion. Not only are God's justice and mercy distributive, but they are also, maybe more importantly, restorative. God's justice and mercy always work together to restoring the world. All throughout history, there have been social justice movements and revolutions. If you think the ones going on right now are anything new, they're not. The history repeats itself. They may have noble intentions, but sometimes they get something very wrong. When the attitude and goals of an oppressed group of people become that of getting even and getting revenge, there's often little opportunity to restore anybody, and there's no opportunity to ever restore the oppressors. The end result is that nothing ever really changes. Either the revolutionaries end up crushed, or the revolutionaries become the new oppressors. Justice isn't really served, People aren't really restored. Only the group with the most power wins. On the other hand, God's restorative justice and mercy are better. Even when God judges the world and he floods the whole world, he raises up in his mercy Noah to give humanity another opportunity to flourish. Even when King David Sin so awfully as to lie with Bathsheba, God harshly reprimands the king with a severe punishment and shows him mercy to continue leading the entire nation. Dictated by his wisdom, God mediates his justice and mercy perfectly to heal and to restore a broken world. The third feature we'll consider is that God's justice and mercy are complete. What this means is that God's justice is never partial and God's mercy is never lacking. 
Let's start with mercy this time. When we say that God's mercy is never lacking, it means that God never runs out of mercy, and he never tires of being compassionate. If you're suffering, never think that God gets tired of hearing your prayers for help. And if you've sinned, never think that God is bored of having people ask for his help and forgiveness. God never wearies of being merciful. Again, just because God's mercy is never lacking doesn't mean that God is obligated to show mercy when we plead for it, though. The moment that people should least expect to receive God's mercy is the moment when they don't even realize they're taking advantage of God's mercy. Now, when it comes to justice, the consequences for breaking God's law must be fully satisfied. It cannot be partial. This is why Jesus' atonement on the cross is so important and such a big deal. God is incapable of letting even a single sin go unpunished. And a partial punishment is not enough to satisfy his justice. His justice is complete. Sometimes we simplify how we speak of salvation to help new believers learn about God. But the act of believing in Jesus is not what literally functions to free a sinner from God's judgment. It can't because James tells us even the demons believe. What faith does is it allows us to receive the redemptive work of God into our lives. What is that work? What, what actually frees us from God's judgment? Well, it's Jesus' substitution and imputation on the cross. Now, substitution and imputation, those are two big words. What do they mean? Well, substitution means that Jesus died in your place. He suffered all of God's wrath stored up for your past, present, and future sins. And he fully satisfied God's justice against you on the cross. Imputation means that Jesus then credited you his perfect righteousness. Jesus took your failing grade, and he gave you his 100% passing grade. That's grace. It's why when speaking of the Messiah, our Savior Jesus, the prophet Isaiah declares, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Ultimately, it is Jesus' sacrifice in our place on the cross that allows every believer to be set free from the full punishment of God's justice. This means that apart from Christ, you'll one day face God's judgment alone. But united with Christ in faith, God sees you as a restored being that he's working on right now to make completely new. By way of review, God's justice and mercy are distributive, restorative, and complete. His justice is perfect, and his mercy never runs dry. As we bring the message to a close, I want us to consider the book of Noah as a sort of case study in God's justice and mercy. And if you have your Bibles, we're just going to look at a few scenes at the end of chapter 3 and 4 in just a moment. To provide a little bit of context, Jonah's enemies were uh, the Assyrian Empire. Uh, they were the worst of the worst. History tells us that they're one of the cruelest empires and just the most sadistic people groups to ever roam the planet. Uh, Jonah lived in the northern kingdom of Israel, and the Assyrians constantly threatened the northern border of Israel. 
When God called Jonah to preach judgment and repentance to a city in the Assyrian Empire called Nineveh, Jonah refused to go. Rather, he found a boat and he started sailing across the Mediterranean Sea in the opposite direction of Nineveh. What we learn in the fourth chapter of the book is that Jonah didn't flee from Nineveh because he was afraid of the Assyrians. And Jonah didn't flee because he was afraid of God. Instead, Jonah fled because he knew God was merciful. He'd rather see the Ninevites destroyed than receive God's mercy. Jonah's resistance was futile. No matter how hard he tried, the obstinate prophet was unable to escape God's will. Rescuing him in the belly of a great fish, God led the prophet right back to Nineveh. Just as Jonah thought would happen, he preached judgment to Nineveh, and he invited the city to repent, and then the worst-case scenario. The evil people in the city of Nineveh believed in God's message. They turned from their evil ways, and God was merciful and turned from judgment. Jonah 3, 10 through 4, 2 says this. When God saw what they did, what the Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? Thousands are spared from judgment, and the man of God prays an angry prayer. Is not this what I thought would happen? Where is your judgment? God, that's not fair. Jonah's vision of justice was judgment, wrath, and punishment. But even against a cruel empire, God had other plans. Jonah wanted justice against the Ninevites so badly, it kept him from seeing and savoring the merciful work of God. It made him bitter, and it made him angry. So Jonah leaves the city of Nineveh, still hoping that they'll mess up in 40 days, and God will destroy them anyway. To teach Jonah a lesson about his justice and mercy, God appoints a plant to provide Jonah shade while he sat like the Grinch outside of Nineveh waiting for the people to fail. Then God takes the plant away from Jonah the next day by sending a worm that causes it to shrivel up. At this, Jonah is outraged with God. How Could God be so cruel as to kill this helpless bush? Or in the tone of R.C. Sproul's student, we might have heard Jonah cry yet again, that's not fair. At the end of the book, God responds to Jonah the Grinch in chapter 4, 9 through 11. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant 
for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Remember, that word pity conveys the same thing as mercy in the Old Testament. When we come to the end of the book, and the cynical prophet is more concerned for a shrub than he is for the lives and welfare of 120,000 souls of his enemies. Jonah's circumstances are a warning to all of us. Even if we consider ourselves to be a great man of God or a faithful woman of God, our thirst for justice may overwhelm our hearts and cause us to become calloused. And that keeps us from seeing the grand redemptive work of God. Because you see, eventually, the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed. At the same time that God sent Jonah to Nineveh, God sent another prophet named Amos to Israel. And unlike the Ninevites, Jonah's people refused to listen to Amos, and they refused to turn to God, and they kicked the prophet out of their kingdom. Within a few decades, the entire northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed by who? The Assyrian Empire. However, even in this judgment, God's justice and mercy were at work to restore his people. How? Well, it just so happens that the premier city that the Assyrians would bring Israelite exiles to was the city of Nineveh. The same city that Jonah wished God would have destroyed was the same city God used as a refuge for wayward Israelites who had been crushed by the Assyrians. This same city in which a generation of Assyrians had received the good news of God from a prophet in Israel, repented and believed, would be the same city to receive the people of God who rejected God's prophet and disbelieved, the great city of Nineveh. In a broken world, it's easy to get angry and bitter and cynical. It's easy to be bothered by everything that goes wrong. And it can be tempting to pray for God to just raise it all to the ground. If there's one thing, though, that you take away from today's message, I want it to be this. Don't end up like Jonah. Stri strive to become like Jesus Christ. Become the kind of follower who's eager to let mercy triumph over judgment. Because often in God's mercy to one generation, he's working to do something incredible to restore a future generation, a generation that we may not even live to see. So when you're tempted to get even or to feel slighted this week, do whatever you can to let God's mercy triumph through you over judgment. Let's pray. Father God, we love you for your justice, and God, we love you for your mercy. Lord, we confess that your judgments are true and righteous even when we struggle to come to grips with our own guilt and shame. Father, thank you for revealing to us your mercy. For those of us here who might be fighting sickness, wrestling with grief, 
or battling any temptation, God, we pray that you would be merciful. God, supply us with the strength we need to face every day. And comfort us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for sending Jesus to be our Savior and our Redeemer. Thank you for taking our punishment to the cross and transferring Jesus' righteousness to us. God, you are an overwhelmingly gracious God. Help us to show mercy to others this week and let your mercy triumph over judgment. Lord, in the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and we'd appreciate a positive rating and would encourage you to share this program with a friend. Thank you for listening.